Good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening. Yes, and good night. So long, folks. <laughs> Thanks for all the fish. Thanks for the fish. <laughs> all right. Welcome to episode 16 of Myth Take. A fresh take on ancient myth. I am Allison Innes. I am Darren Sundstrom. And we are your friendly, if sometimes somewhat confused, uh, hosts. <laughs> yes, <laughs> At least I'm the confused one, I I'm think. I'm confused. <laughs> I'm confused right now. Well, you might be a little bit confused too, dear listener, yeah. because we did tell you we were going to be talking about Dayanera. Mm-hmm. And we are not talking about Dayanera this no. episode. We're going to save her uh, maybe for maybe next time. We're, but we still are at the Heroes at Home. We yes. still are dealing with the... Um, Heroes at home, women, women, women yes. heroes, right? Women heroes. Mm-hmm. Um, and Maybe the most notorious of all will be the subject of tonight's ah. um, exposition and myth. Well, the big question is, is she a hero? Yeah. Well, hey, yeah. Well, I'm going to say yes, without doubt. Absolutely. Well, the fact we're talking about her in Heroes at Home kind it is of suggests suggestive. where we stand on it the issue. It is suggestive, yes. But our listeners may think otherwise. And, and it, we should actually name our hero. Helen, hell indeed. Yeah. Helen of Troy. Yeah, Helen yes. of Troy. And we're looking at Euripides' Trojan women. Um, we're That's going to be our primary source, yes. Yeah. And there's a lot of different sources about Helen and a lot of different uh, presentations about Helen. So certainly the way Euripides presents Helen is not the definitive and be-all and end-all of Helen. No. Um, but we just chose this play because we like it, and Helen has a nice long monologue that I'm going to attempt to read. At oh point. yeah, well that was part <laughs> of it. Yeah, absolutely. And Euripides doesn't make things easy on you as as a as a reader. Uh, uh, you know, he he is uh, challenging. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And the Trojan women actually looks at closely at um, several different women. Mm-hmm. Um, looks at Cassandra, and uh, her role in the or her actions around the fall of Troy we look at Hecuba um, Andromache is in this one too Andromache as well yeah and Helen herself Helen herself as well so these are the the sad stories these are the tales of the victims of war right and of course Cassandra Hecuba and uh, Andromache all wind up with very different fates from Helen's fate that's right so the play, um, as we've already kind of mentioned, takes place the fall of Troy. The Greeks are running around, burning, pillaging, yeah, They've got most of them taken care of. Yeah, it's kind of just mopping up. Yeah, this is the mopping up operations. Yeah. Right? And the women have been brought together and... But they're deciding the fate of these women. Yeah, mm-hmm. and they're being divvied up amongst the men. Because they are prizes, right? Yeah. So this is produced in 415 BC during the Peloponnesian War. Um, it is often seen as a commentary for the, uh, you know, the sort of uh, sad conditions, or you know, the, the, the well, the slaughter or the genocide of the million people at the hands of the Athenians, right, the island of Milos. Um, there is, um, you know, uh, those great speeches that are in it are the parts that we're going to pay attention to. We're not really going to place it in its historical context, but it's, it's worth looking at, um, uh, even with the small little, you know, the telescopic vision we're going to give it tonight. So it's worth worth looking at. Okay, yeah. so do we just want to jump right in with... Uh, yeah, we can. ...with our passage? Yep. All yep. right. Everybody knows who Helen of Troy is. Or Helen of Sparta is actually better, right? I prefer Helen of Sparta. Well... 
I'm calling her Helen of Troy in our uh, notes, uh, yeah. simply because she is in Troy at this point and has been in Troy for quite a lengthy time. Mm-hmm. And uh, at this point, uh, Menelaus, her Spartan husband, mm-hmm. um, has uh, been given the privilege, the decision uh, to the opportunity to decide what to do with Helen. Mm-hmm. And he uh, seeks her out and has a conversation with her, which isn't necessarily a good idea. (laughs) Um, But we'll see. Uh, So we're going to start our reading um, at line 914 in the play. We're reading a translation by Diskin Clay. And you can find, of course, the details of that on our website. Perhaps, because you believe that I am your enemy, you will refuse to reply to me, whether you think I speak well or badly. But I will reply to you by anticipating the charges that you will lodge against me in your speech, my charges answering yours and yours mine. First, then, I say that when that woman gave birth to Paris, she produced the beginning of troubles. Second, old Priam destroyed both Troy and me when he failed to kill the infant, that bitter dream image of a torch then called Alexander. Attend now to how the story unfolds. This Alexander had to judge a triad of three goddesses. The bribe of Pallas Athena to Alexander was to grant him the destruction of Greece as commander of the Phrygians. If Paris should choose her over the other goddesses, Hera promised him Asia an absolute rule over all of Europe. And Cyprus, who is astounded by my beauty, promised me as a reward if she outstripped the other goddesses in beauty. Consider how the tale now turns. Cyprus was victorious over the other goddesses, and this victory is the great good of my, my marriage did for Greece. You are not subject to barbarians. You were not defeated in battle, nor did you fall under a tyranny. All this was Greece's great good fortune, but this was the cause of my undoing. I was destroyed by my beauty, and I am blamed for acts which I deserve a victor's crown placed upon my head. You will say that I have not yet stated the obvious. I stole away from the house in secret. Paris came to your house accompanied by no mean goddess. As my avenging demon, call him Alexander, the defender, if you like, or Paris, the destroyer. You craven coward! This is the man you left at home in Sparta when you sailed off to Crete. I have made my point. I will speak next, not of you, but of myself. Tell me, how could I have run away from your house with a strange man and betrayed home and country were I in my right mind? Chastise the goddess, not me, and become stronger than Zeus. Zeus wields power over all the other gods, but is the slave of this goddess. There is no reason to blame me. As the tale continues, you might have a plausible charge against me. You could claim that once Alexander had died and entered the hollows of the earth, I should have left his house and gone down to the ships of the Argives. At that time, my marriage was not compassed by a god. This is exactly what I tried to do. I have as my witness the guards at the city gates and the watchmen on the ramparts. Time after time, they discovered me trying to steal away, lowering my body from the battlements to the ground with twisted sheets. As for my new husband, Diophobus, the Phrygians were against the marriage, but he took me by force. Tell me, my husband, why do I deserve to be put to death for this? 
You would commit an injustice if you did. My last husband forced me to marry him, and my life within Troy was a life of bitter servitude, not the life of a victor. If you wish to be stronger than the gods, you are living in a fool's paradise. Okay. Well, there you have it. That's quite the speech. She's got some powerful words, that girl. Yes. Mm -hmm. Utterances. Muthos. She knows how to present a very powerful argument, right? It's whether you buy it or not. Her yeah. life's on the line, right? And Menelaus came in and found her with the intentions of taking her back to Greece. But the more she talks... Well, he, yeah, he says he came to kill her. To, sorry, to kill her. Yeah. The more she talks, uh, the more inclined he is to take her back to Greece and take her home again. Ultimately. Um, yeah. Ultimately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's very persuasive. Yeah, absolutely. And Hecuba knows that. And this uh, speech is actually followed up with Hecuba debunking, so yeah. to speak. Her, um, her kind of clever retort. Uh, right? Some of what Helen says. Mm-hmm. She appeals to the universal quality of justice, right? That's Hecuba. But Helen here is, is presenting a very sort of complex and, and nuanced argument. But it's all based on a single premise, right? The idea is that she is completely and utterly blameless in the entire thing. And she doesn't even wait for Menelaus to accuse her of anything. Like, she's prepared and she's on the offensive here. Oh, yeah. And and she says, look, I already know what you're going to say. Yeah. And so I'm just going to tell you uh, what what it is. She calls him a craven coward. Yeah. Right? And she blames him, right, for, for being the one who wasn't there, for going off to Crete and leaving her alone with Paris back home in Sparta. Was that a smart thing to do, Menelaus? Not exactly, right? Yeah. She she presents herself as the savior of Greece here. Yeah. That's what she says. She's so, like all of this. She's she's like everybody else has got it wrong. So we'll go through it kind of bit by bit and mm-hmm. try to unpack this argument that she's making. Sure. And what it says about her. Um, so her first, uh, as I mentioned, she's she's on the on the offensive. She doesn't even wait for Menelaus to. Um, to really make his charges against her. Um, And she says, first then I say that when that woman, Mm -hmm. and who is that woman? Hecuba. Hecuba. The queen of Troy. Who is standing right there. An old woman. An old woman um, who has watched her children and her husband be killed and her city destroyed. Standing right there. This war is her fault, Helen says, because she gave birth to Paris. Yep. Yep. And if she hadn't given birth to Paris, if it's fault that you need in this, there's your there stands fault right there. That's what the, ha, Helen is saying. And mm-hmm. then further, Priam, yep, her we'll husband too. and Paris's father, mm-hmm. is also to blame because he did not destroy Paris. Mm-hmm. So they had a dream that there was. Uh, I, I don't remember the exact details of the dream. Well, Do you, it, yeah, of the dream prophecy. A little bit. Yeah, the uh, um, the. A prophet, a Trojan prophet, um, uh, told, interpreted the dream of Hecuba. She dreamt that she gave birth to a torch, uh, and uh, as a result of that, um, the uh, the dream was interpreted that this infant, this child, would be the fall responsible for the fall of Troy. So, the prophet told them that they had to expose the child, to get rid of the child, to kill it. Right, that it needed to be killed. And that decision, of course, rests with the father of the family, mm-hmm. and that is Priam. Mm-hmm. And he couldn't, couldn't go through with it. Yeah. You know, it's just like Oedipus. 
He couldn't couldn't do it. Well, exposure is one thing. He gave him up to a to a shepherd, mm-hmm. right? And the shepherd went out with the intention of killing the child because his king had commanded to, to do yeah. so. But he couldn't do it either, right? Mm-hmm. And he was left to be exposed. Well, miraculously, the, according to the, some of the background mythology, Paris survived nine days by being suckled by a she-boar, right? Um, and when the, when the shepherd returned, he saw the baby was still alive. So he picked the baby up, put him in a sack, brought him back home. And that word para is where you get Paris from because it means sack or backpack. Okay. So that's Paris's that. yeah. name, right? So he brought him back into the city, and he has a new name and a new identity because that's not his birth name. Right. This is something that, that is quite common in hero stories, too, the sort of alter ego idea. But I don't want to go too far yeah. down the Paris track. We're sticking yeah. with Helen tonight. So the idea then is that because Priam did not kill the child, yeah. um, that Priam shares He's shares blame for shares his existence blame. and yeah. therefore his actions. Yeah. So, what so this he? is a classic case of blaming the parents. Yeah, blame the parents. Blame the mother. Right. First, yeah. for denying for giving the, birth, the, for giving birth, and for denying the will of the gods, and then blame the father for an act of human kindness. Right. Mm-hmm. His his inability, right, to follow through, and his inability um, to kill his own infant son. Right. So then Helen goes into the story. Uh, which is probably quite familiar to any to any of our listeners sure. familiar with the, with the Trojan War. Right. There are the the three goddesses which the each famous. offer something. Yeah. And this is where Helen comes in with the idea that she is actually the savior of Greece. Yeah. Because if uh, a- if Athena had been awarded the apple by Paris, mm-hmm. then Paris would have destroyed all of Greece. Sure. So you should thank me because yeah. you and guys the, still and, yeah. are there. And the same thing would have happened if if, if uh, he had chosen Hera's bribe. Yes. They would have found themselves subjugated, right? Yeah. So, you know, from Helen's perspective, this choice is the good choice. This is the choice that makes her, that recasts her, this 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 um, much vilified woman, right, into the hero, right, and into a good guy, and, and a well, savior, yeah, the savior, not yeah. just a good guy, but yeah. the savior of Greece. Mm-hmm. Um, just like the female version of Alexander, because Alexander is given that name, Alexandros, right, protector yeah. of men, right, which is a little bit ironic because yeah. when you read the Iliad. He's not really much of a No, no, he's not. But that, that comes from his earlier yeah. background myth. You know, apparently as a young man, he had chased off some cattle rustlers or something like that. So he, he had done some heroic deeds and as, a, as a young man, and he was given that particular title. And, of course, Helen's saving of Greece came at great, great expense I'll to say. herself, she is saying. Yeah. Um, that this was not uh, an easy task. So uh, it was not something she wanted to do. Yeah, she, yeah she's, and, and she says, actually, blame the mom, right? Mm-hmm. Blame, the, blame Hecuba, right? Or blame Priam. Or, and then blame... Aphrodite. Aphrodite. Blame the goddess, right? And, and, and Menelaus as well. Blame yourself, right? Mm-hmm. There's blame everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. And, and there's plenty of that to go around from Helen's perspective. And that's where she gets into this idea of blaming Menelaus yeah. um, in, in the passage th- that Menelaus had left her at home alone with Paris. Yeah. 
um, and Helen, of course, all most beautiful woman in all of Greece mm -hmm. and he takes off to Crete for something. Do you know what that? No, I'm not sure what that is. It's some, okay. you know, some anyway. diplomatic mission of some sort. It's an yeah. ally, right? Yeah. Probably to recruit them or something or make yeah. some sort of trade negotiations or something. It doesn't say. And then uh, Aphrodite caused Helen to run away with Paris. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right place, right time. I don't know. You know, the, the, the sources are conflicting in that regard about the responsibility. You know, you put these two people together, these things happen, right? Mm -hmm. You know. Uh, and later sources, um, certainly like in the Hellenistic sources, they try to uh, rehabilitate Helen's character. Totally. And that's where you get this idea that Helen was in Egypt the entire time. And yep. it was only her, uh, Edelon, yeah. her kind of image, a mm -hmm. mirage of Helen yeah. that Looting. they were fighting for, and she was actually completely innocent. Yeah, that, that, that even begins with Euripides himself, right? Yeah. Yeah, so there's a, there's a trend to rehabilitate Helen, absolutely. Yeah. All right, so, um, and if you're going to blame Aphrodite, then you may as well, well, you need to be better than Zeus, because Zeus himself subject to Aphrodite. Is subject to, Af to Aphrodite. Yeah. Um, and Zeus, of course, is notorious for all of his affairs. Yeah. And that's what Helen's referring to here. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and what this does, too, it sort of changes the whole mm, gender conflict uh, uh, paradigm. Uh, you know, this, of course, the ancient world is a patriarchal order, obviously, and the gods of the Olympian pantheon, they reflect that patriarchy. Zeus is the chief god, obviously a male, uh, and he has vast strength, right? But in this sort of reformulation, in this argument, um, Helen sort of fundamentally reorders the nature of the universe, and, and she uses a number of um, sort of philological but rhetorical tropes where she talks about the relationships between strength and love. And she says things like, although Zeus is stronger, Zeus is mastered by Aphrodite. So who's the most powerful goddess, right? Who's the most powerful person? Um, and Zeus, of course, is the most powerful god. But Zeus but is... But how powerful is he if... He, if he is affected by, by Aphrodite. And here we have Helen, the demigod daughter of Zeus, right? Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and in this case, she is a... Um, um, unwitting pawn, right? She calls uh, um, uh, she calls Aphrodite a demon, right? She says that mm -hmm. she's her avenging demon, right? And uh, she knows about the effect of desire, right? The effect of sexuality and allure and charm, right? And certainly if Zeus can't overcome Aphrodite, you really cannot expect poor little Helen yeah. to... Uh, yeah, but she uses it, right? Yeah. So, like, and she has both. But, but, but that's what she's saying, yeah. like... It, yeah. Zeus, Zeus can't overcome Aphrodite. Yeah. So how how can you expect me to be able to do that? Well, yeah, but still, but what what I'm sort of getting at is with this sort of reconceptualization, with this with this type of argument in this system, Helen herself is theoretically the most powerful being in the cosmos, mm -hmm. stronger than Zeus even, mm -hmm. because she is the one that can bend the will. Right? They talked about how you know. That, that argument was what is the strong what is the strongest thing in the universe and the man says iron right and then they say well the god Hephaestus can bend the iron right and then they say yeah but who bends Hephaestus his wife Aphrodite right mm. so who's the strongest right 
and 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 Helen is is really going for it here. This is a very precipitous line of of argumentation, because if you don't buy it, then you don't get any of it. Mm-hmm. But as soon as you're as soon as you do, you have to accept it all because mm-hmm. uh, they're linked together, right? And what is what she's banking on here is that it allows her to extricate herself from this situation entirely. There's 10 years of warfare on her hands, 10 years of bloodshed. A generation of young men have gone to their graves, right, in this conflict. So she's got a lot of work to do, right? So there's a lot riding on this, not simply her own life. I think it's very much an argument of reputation as well, mm-hmm. right? So there, there's, there's a lot going on in there. Is there a couple of other lines you'd like to take a little oh, closer yeah. look at? Um, well... I'd also like to look at what continues here. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd like to look at this bit that follows here where she's talking about... Um, okay, a little further down on yeah, line 950 yeah, or so? With Alexander's death. Okay. So or, uh, Paris. So Paris mm-hmm. dies yep. during during the Trojan War, mm-hmm. and Helen remarries um, Diophobus. Yeah. Diophobus. Diophobus. <laughs> yeah. Whatever. <laughs> I didn't practice geeks. that one. Diophobus. Yeah. Diophobus. I, I don't know. She goes through a whole Somebody pile can... of husbands. Yeah. Yeah. Um, she is quite the prize after all, and a woman like this must be linked to a man. Because here, even if you have like so, so you accept her argument. And you say, okay, you couldn't help it. You had to marry him. Yeah. Well, he died a while ago. And you didn't Why leave. didn't you come? She says she tried. She See. says, ask the guards at the gates. I tried to lower myself down ah. from the battlements with the twisted sheets. Can right? Menelaus ask the guards at the gates? Yeah, well, they're probably dead. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. exactly. And that's what mm-hmm. Hecuba goes on to point out is mm-hmm. that, okay, we never saw you. When did you ever do this? Yeah. You never did this. And the guards at the gate are dead dead like yeah. you've got nobody it, you know oh, it's, what, it's what the greatest so. yeah, what the great that's a great witness yeah nobody can argue with them nobody the, can cross examine them exactly they're, they're dead they're dead right they're incapable of, of of offering up testimony right so here we go right? I like the note in this translation mm-hmm. is, that says that they are all dead yeah they're all dead <laughs> that's Especially, the footnote yeah, in the, Trojan in this translation. guards they are all dead yeah but I, I do like this is her argument though like let, let's accept it on face value right okay because Hecuba's got irons in the fire as well she clearly wants Helen to be killed and to be killed immediately for what she's done yes now definitely that, that doesn't require a you know a great deal of of discussion but Helen is saying once again you don't understand, right? You don't know what it's like to be a woman like me, to be put into this position. I tried to get away after Paris was killed, right? And I would have if I could have. And if those if those conditions were not met or that situation didn't occur, it doesn't deny that she, well, I don't know if it does deny. It does, it's still possible that she is a woman without resource in this particular regard. She can't just leave. She couldn't, right? She's just as much a captive as anybody else. I would want to. Maybe it demonstrates her will, right? But she has very little time to act independently because almost immediately she's she's seized upon by Diophobus. She says it's uh, um, more of a, uh, she was forced into the marriage, right? 
Well, it's a yeah, subduction. He, he took me by force. He took me by force. Yeah, and you can. But again, we only have her say so, right? We only well, have her. Yeah, in the witness of the gods, right? The corroboration yeah. of the gods. That's it, right? But can we trust Helen, right? Like that's what this all comes all comes down to. Yeah. Is can can you trust Helen? No, you can't trust Helen in the sense that you in, in the sense that you're talking about. You can't take what she's saying at, at face value. Well, because she's she's able to manipulate she, she's able to use speech yeah. to to manipulate and yeah. to get what she wants out of it mm-hmm. and and i think um and we certainly see that in the odyssey mm-hmm. um she's so, using rhetoric right yeah so matus so she's i don't know to me she's always inherently untrustworthy you just have to take everything that she says with a grain of salt because totally it's not... I would just like... Yeah, I, I know where you're going. Yeah. I would just like to give her the same benefit of the doubt that we would give a male hero in this situation. Odysseus lies every time he opens yes. his mouth. Yeah. And we do not devalue his heroics. But here with Helen, right away, everyone who reads this passage always says... And, you know, you could... you could. Oh, they're always like, oh, that dissembler, that duplicitous woman, but that I don't liar, mean- that conniver. And they'll use... They'll use other words, right? Yeah. But in in this situation, right, I, I like to give her some privilege. And and I don't mean to devalue her as a hero mm-hmm. because a hero does whatever they need to do. Sure. Okay. Right? Yeah. I mean we see that we see that elsewhere, that that our idea of heroes being virtuous and yeah, somehow above these sorts oh, yeah, of things, we, right? Yeah, we don't want that doesn't apply to no. the Greek models. No. So I, I, I guess what I'm saying is, as a reader mm-hmm. listen, listening to her tale, mm-hmm. we have to remember that we are listening to Helen, and one of her superpowers, yeah. so to speak, her superpowers yeah. are beauty yep. and this gift of speech yeah. and rhetoric and being able to mm-hmm. twist things. So if you don't go into that mm-hmm. realizing that Helen has this ability and you just swallow it yeah. as what she's saying, mm-hmm. um, you're kind of, I, I don't know. Well, I know I know what you're saying. Yeah. Do, you, do you know what I'm trying to Yeah, trying I, to I explain? got a bit of that. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the you just thing have is, to stay aware, stay aware of the bias of your sources. Well, <laughs> totally, and that's why I'm looking at yeah. it in this manner. the the other The other thing is that you know when I hear about the power of rhetoric, when I think about the the terrible effect that sophistry had on the on Athens, right, and and in the Peloponnesian War, right. Uh, and these, this type of charm, this type of um, ability to affect and influence, to create desire and to steer people's thoughts is something that Helen has, right? And she has it in both qualities. She has it through logos and she also has it through eros, right? She has the power to charm physically, right? Through, through the erotic function. But she also has that erotic quality of Muthos of of logos of the word, right? Ch- words can change you; they can charm you, you know. And if I recall correctly, as as well mm-hmm. from my studies, mm-hmm. that one of the problems that we that that the female heroes with this um, speech superpower yeah. have, and it's similar to Medea, yeah. is that these skills in rhetoric are yeah. not supposed to be they, female skills. Exactly. They are supposed to be male skills. Yeah. You're in a small group. 
Yeah. Right? So I would include in that group, I would include Medea, right? Definitely Medea. Right? And that's your area. I would include Helen, mm-hmm. right? And I would also include Clytemnestra. Um, yes. They, they, Helen and Clytemnestra are, of course, relatives. Oh, we need to, rel- we need to relatives, do a Clytemnestra right? episode. Yeah. <laughs> I love Clytemnestra. Right. Yeah. Clytemnestra is, is an older sister, right? She's her, she's her tw- uh, twin, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. The, uh, yeah, she's that's the, true. Right. She's the mortal. Yeah. She was the mortal the, version. Yeah. It was Lita, right? Lita gave birth to two she, eggs, yeah. and inside of it, both had a male and a female. Yeah. Right. And there's Castor and Pollux, which I can never keep them straight. Which yep. one was the mortal and which one was the divine? Yeah. And it then it was Helen and Clytemnestra. Yeah. And the. Uh, and this, of course, contrasts with the other woman of the story, Penelope. Yeah. Um, who is waiting, at, who is giving us that image of, of, of the woman waiting at home faithfully for her husband. Prudence. Yeah, absolutely. The prudence. Yeah. And she also has a very good, uh, very. Um, she, she's not stupid a, by any no, <laughs> she's not. imagination. Uh, and, uh, and she also has a power of words, too, yeah. the power of words. They are, they are contrasted to Odysseus's. They're a little bit more subtle and a little bit more muted, of course. And they don't... And she um, does not compete with her words yeah. like these other women Yeah, this do. is this is a different sort of thing. These Helen is what they call a philotimai, right? A lover of timai, a lover yeah. of honor. And she, she understands uh, the male w- uh, world of heroics. She understands kleos. She understands honor. She understands... All those things that um, others do not. And her life story is, an, is a heroic life story. She goes on an adventure, mm-hmm. right? She is a demigod daughter of Zeus himself, right? Um, this, this, it can't, sometimes it's so apparent. It's like the argument of the it, your nose on it, your face, you know, that it's overlooked. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's, it just seems more compelling for some people um, and and uh, when I say some people, I'll just say historically for classicists even to um, sling a lot of mud at a character like Helen, yeah. right? But uh, I, I'm going to jump ship on that. Well, and I just want to uh, want to note, just going back um, or finishing up, I guess, with mm-hmm. our conversation about this being a male quality. Yeah. Um, the power of speech. The reason it's a male quality is that this is what is done in public in the Agora as yeah. part of practicing democracy. So sure. I just wanted to bring that out. Yeah, for, I, because I mentioned some of our listeners might not be familiar with with that. Yeah, I mentioned um, sophistry. Yeah. Right. So yeah, the ability yeah. to make speeches in public and mm-hmm. persuade people mm-hmm. to your way for, of thinking. Yeah, for right or wrong. This is Helen. <laughs> and I can't help for but right think of our own media climate right now. Oh, don't, um, don't even start. <laughs> I'm not going to draw any parallels. You yeah. can think about that yourself. Yeah. But um, it's certainly a, a very male quality because it's the men who are out doing democracy. Democracy is not for women. It's not a, a something women practice or women do. They're not even yeah. citizens not, so yeah. or voting citizens. Mm-hmm. So um, that's where we get that that strong connection with the with the male and the speech speech. Acts. Absolutely. So let's, anyway. let's look at a couple of other lines. Um. Her life within Troy was a life of bitter servitude. I've got that underlined for some reason. Oh, yeah. Not part the after life of after Deiphobus took her by force. Yes. Yeah. It's yeah. it's the poor me part, yeah. right? It's oh poor me. You don't un- if you only understood what it was like. It really wasn't, you know, it wasn't as good as you think it was. Um, yeah. I don't know. You know, it says uh, not the life of a victor, but it's great because you see the way the poet in this case, the playwright. I mean, Euripides, he. 
oscillates the word victor at the end of her speech with her victory crown at the beginning of the speech. Mm -hmm. So this is the, um, not only is this the the poetry of, of heroics, this is also the sort of metaphorical complex of, of athletics as well. And this is something that's been foremost on my mind uh, lately um, is uh, the study of, of ancient sport. And, and she is placing herself here uh, as, as a victor, right? And victors win crowns. They win kleos, glory. They express their erite, their skill, right? But they, they don't um, win, you know, like gold or something like that. They'll win crowns, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and she's, she's, she's framing it this way. She's framing herself as a victorious athlete, right? What is the contest, Helen? What is the contest? You and know, again, very male terms. Yeah, yeah, and oh, totally, yeah, because women did not compete. Women were not allowed. This was a male activity, right? Um, so she's comparing herself as, a, as an Olympic victor. And what a great metaphor, too, Olympia, right? The, the sanctuary of Zeus, right? Mm -hmm. And so here is this victory crown of, of, of uh, laurel crown that were to place upon her head, right? Uh, what was the contest? You know, that's, that's what I'm thinking. What is the agon? And this agon here, right, uh, is, is the, her defense of her life, mm -hmm. right? And when but she has nothing to lose. She's got nothing here. to lose. No, this is this is all in. This is all chips in, right? And everything is focused on Menelaus. And you know, one of the things that I like about this too, because this is a rather lengthy, rather lengthy bit, right? Is it also plays to Helen's strength. It's something that you were talking about before. If it was punctuated short, clipped, quick, right, then it wouldn't work. Right? Mm -hmm. It needs to be long and drawn out. Right? Do you know what I'm yeah. getting at? Why does it need to be long and drawn out? She's building. She's building her case. Well, she is and building her case, but there's there's something. My argument here in this in this one the regard. The more she would be, talks, lo the longer Menelaus has to look at her. Yes, and it, I would say <laughs> if she just stood there, if she did not speak, his, and she could keep his attention for this length of time, it would still work. Yeah. Right. But she needs to talk because it is a play. Yeah. Right. We can't just have this woman come out and stand there for 40 seconds. <laughs> Although, wouldn't that be great? But how would you record that? You know what I mean? Like, but it's all It's part like of that it. musical piece, four minutes and 33 seconds, which is like, oh, just, just it's dead all rests. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's all, there's no yeah. music. <laughs> yeah. It's fill in the blanks, right? It's like you create it yourself. But you, you see what I'm getting at, right? Yeah. Because he Helen's, the, Helen's got this powers that we spoke of, right? But she's also got this other power. And they're both working in full fact here. They're working... Uh, in defense of her own self, right? Mm -hmm. Her erotic quality and her her mythic quality, right? And I'll say the muthos, the utterance from the voice of the male authority. That's really what it means. Like when you when you read in Hesiod and they talk about, you know, when the myth, the power of the myth, right? They say mm -hmm. muthos is in there. That word is infused with male authority. When Zeus speaks, he, he utters the muthoi, right? Mm -hmm. So the, that that the, all that logos logo logoi stuff comes much later, right? This is something that Helen understands. So it's great because she's speaking like a like a, a male god would speak mm -hmm. here, mm -hmm. and she's acting like Aphrodite herself would act, right? And this is what I this is what I find so intriguing about characters like Helen. And I, I mean, there have been reams, mm -hmm. like there have been forests cut down just about <laughs> just over Helen with the papers and conversations. Totally, um, but. 
this is where she fits in with Clytemnestra and where she fits in with Medea, where you have that woman who has transgressed what it means to be female and who is acting in that male capacity. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That, that's what makes it so fascinating for me. That's what makes it so fascinating. I just fascinating, thought I'd share. Fascinating <laughs> you? Yeah, it is. Because because I think it says a lot like if she's if if she's an example of a transgression, mm-hmm. uh, right? Then it says a lot about what they expect from women, right? Mm-hmm. And from their from their behavior. Yeah. Um, well, all the, everything that gets all the Greeks, all the men in all these narratives upset at Helen, are the exact are the types of things that they expect normal women to do, mm-hmm. right? Stay at home, be faithful, be quiet, be demure. Right, all who knows? Like it, yeah. the list goes on and on. It's everything that Helen is not. Yeah. Right? Yeah, you want a beautiful wife, of course you do. Right? But you don't want her that beautiful, right? And to the point where this this sad picture we get of Menelaus and and uh, of Menelaus at home after the war, like in the Odyssey, it's pathetic. Yeah. Right? Like it's it's not that's not what you want. That's the death of heroics. Right? Well, she's the one that's the triumphant figure, triumphal figure there. But that's beyond our source. So let's stick yeah. with the source here. Well, I thought maybe we um, we could just summarise briefly what Hecuba says afterwards. Or, or did well, you, you want to go back? I, I wanted to something? go back a little okay. bit to nine thirty five, right? Because it taught it, it addresses some of the themes that that we were discussing a few moments ago, right? Where she's talking about victory. See, here's the victory that mm-hmm. was at the beginning, right? So the lines, um, because our readers probably aren't looking at this. Yeah. Um, consider how the tale now turns. At Ky- 9.30, consider how the tale now turns, right? Cyprus, and mm-hmm. Cyprus, of course, is Aphrodite. Yes. Associated with Cyprus and hard, hard Kappa. Yeah. Uh, was victorious over the other goddesses. Mm-hmm. And this victory is the great good my marriage did for Greece. And this so victory... There's yeah, right? the contest. This this victory, this contest, this agon, right? This beauty contest, right? This trial, the judgment of Paris, right? Is the greatest good my marriage did for Greece, right? Mm-hmm. Now, which marriage is she speaking about there? Marriage to Menelaus or yeah. marriage to Paris? I think she's speaking about. If you read it through, right? And I think she's speaking about. Consider how the tale marriage. now turns, right? Cyprus yeah. was victorious over the other goddesses, right? Because we know Paris picked Aphrodite. He listened to all three of them, saw all three of them naked, and then he picked Aphrodite, mm-hmm. right? And then he says, and this victory, right, is the great good my marriage did for Greece. Her marriage to Paris, that's how I've always mm-hmm. read that, because it's, as we have already said, it's by marrying Paris that Hera and Athena don't get their way in, in destroying Greece. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yep. Yeah, and then it says, you are not, you, and then she goes on to talk about what the alternate histories yeah, exactly. might have been, right? So that's fine, right? I, I don't have a problem with that. Uh, but you know, you, notice the, you notice the way that she does say, consider how this tale now turns. Because now she's saying, that's how you, that's how it was, and then this is really the way it's going to be. This is the beginning of her, her when I was talking about how she's changing the whole paradigm, right? Altering the entire story. Um and uh, it hit the post-truth environment, 
Huh? <laughs> yeah. Right, eh? right there. New post-truth environment. There's the post-truth environment, line 931, <laughs> right? Euripides, yeah. Trojan women, right? So now we're on the other side of the looking glass. So if you're following along with Helen's logic, everything that she's going to say, right? She's telling you she's going to tell you the truth, right? And you got to buy it. Because there is no such thing as truth anymore. There's only what Helen says, right? And she's gotten, and there's no way to verify there's it. There's no way to verify it. You know, no fact checkers. Factchecker.org, right? You're not subject to blah, blah, blah. And then you notice on line 935 it says, but this was the cause of my undoing. I was destroyed by my beauty and I am blamed for acts which I deserve a victor's crown placed upon my head. Yes. So again, that... That victory, the contest, yeah. the heroics—it's—it's—it's yeah. it's, it's athletics, yeah. right? It's—it's a—it's a struggle. You know, what is the contest, right? And then when she says, "I was destroyed by my beauty," that line—it—it it, uh, mirrors the line a little bit later down, a little further on, when she talks about Alexander, Alexander, the defender, if you like, or Paris, the destroyer, mm-hmm. right? So that she too. Was it, it was a destroyer, mm-hmm. right? Just as Paris was a destroyer, right? Paris is a destroyer. She was destroyed by. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It says, and I and I am blamed. I was destroyed by my beauty, right? And Paris was in in essence destroyed by his beauty too. He was a uh, beautiful young little infant child, right? Mm-hmm. They they couldn't help themselves, right? He was allowed to survive, right? But and I'm sure for the <coughs> goddesses to ask him to judge their little contest, mm-hmm. I'm sure that he was a very good-looking mm-hmm. young youth. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Apparently, though, that myth, why they selected him, I always had questions about that. What an unfortunate thing, right, to be selected by the gods really for anything, considering yeah. mythology. I think but so. I, in I, this I, case, I think you'd rather they just kind of not notice you most of the time. I know. <laughs> I, you, they, you would like if they would just leave you alone. <laughs> Right, but this this um, this tragic tale begins in this judgment, right, and the selection of this young Trojan prince uh, to to pick, you know, the Caliste, the most beautiful for the fairest, right? These golden apples, and uh, you know, there's a, a myth, an obscure myth, a background myth that says that the reason why Paris had been selected by the gods was because of his exceptional piety, of course, because being a Trojan, but also his fair-mindedness. And I was like, well, how is that evident? It turns out that there's a myth that says that uh, Paris, as a young man, he, um, of course, was a shepherd, like many of the Trojans were. Uh, We're looking at Mm -hmm. uh, Anchises, for example, as a paradigm. If you're not, you know, the Trojans, Mount Ida, it's beautiful, you know, whatever, right? Agrarian society Yeah, that type of stuff, right? So um, he used to have a champion bull that he used to train to fight other bulls. And it belonged to the shepherd that saved him uh, and that helped reared him for a short time. And he started to contest out this bull to other shepherds. And it kept winning and it kept winning, right? It's sort of like bullfights, like having bulls fight each other. I don't know really what that would look like, but they used to have the bulls fight other bulls. And, and he, he um, made a bet that said he would give a gold crown, because obviously he had some resource, to um, whomever's bull, right, managed to beat his bull. And the thing was undefeated, but Ares heard about the contest and transformed himself into a bull and fought against Paris's prize bull. And of course, Ares being a god won, right? And immediately, it says, immediately Paris placed the gold crown upon the head of Ares, 
right? Mm -hmm. As the bull, right? Mm -hmm. So Aries remembered that, and the gods remembered it. And says this is one of the reasons that informed Zeus's decision to pick Paris, because he had already made a pious judgment in the past over his own bull. Mm -hmm. Like he could have picked his own bull, right? Or said, no, you cheated, or God knows what else could have happened, right? But he picked the winner and crowned the winner, mm -hmm. right? So he was seen as fair and, and uh, pious, right? Mm -hmm. So like, oh, we need it. We need someone. We need someone to uh, uh, judge, right? And well, bing, flick it off. Flick the apple off down to the slopes of Mount Ida. Jim and looking, looking at it from that perspective, mm -hmm. though, I think that if you were in Paris's shoes, and let's go with this idea that yeah. he is being fair-minded, that yeah. he's not just blinded by beauty, mm -hmm. that you're looking at, well, first of all, it's impossible. I mean, yeah, you're right. judging between three goddesses, like, yeah. come on. Um, I don't know where to begin with that. But perhaps looking at it, he says, okay, well, oh, I, oh, I, you're talking I could about destroy, yeah, yeah, like like his. Go on, yeah. Okay, I could just I could pick Athena and I could destroy Greece. Mm -hmm. I could pick Hera and I could rule all, all of Europe and sure. take over everybody else. Mm -hmm. Or I could just walk away with this woman. And mm -hmm. in in a certain way, that makes sense mm -hmm. because, I mean, how's he? Does he know that he's going to trigger the Trojan War when no. he picks when, when he picks um, picks Aphrodite? Right. Yeah. So so I guess I'm I'm kind of saying. Um, I don't know. M maybe I'm stretching it, but but maybe you're saying he picked the thing that was the most rational and logical yeah. for him to pick at the time. I yeah. totally agree. With, with, with the smallest, with the with from his mortal yeah. <laughs> perspective, yeah. with the smallest impact, the the least likely to hurt. Well, this is it, and this is it. Many commentators have talked about this idea about the what are the background uh, notions that inform uh, Paris's decision, right? And really, they. They all th I like to use all three of these things because they signal sort of what is the absolute desire of the heroic male of, the, say, the archaic period, right? What is it that all men want, right? Homer Glory. talks about it, yeah. Euripides picks it up here, so on. It becomes the myth, right? So these three goddesses, these three choices represent some sort of symbolic male desire, right? Power, wealth, authority victory, right? Warfare, those types of things, right? And love, right? Mm -hmm. And 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 the love of the most beautiful woman, right? The perfect bride, the prototypical bride, right? Paris Zeus's daughter. Up. Paris passes up the chance for yeah. glory through warfare. Yeah. Well, I, my, Achilles, my, Achilles, I don't think would pick the most beautiful woman. No, he, the, the <laughs> Achilles would want to destroy Greece. I mean, if he weren't Greek, but like, yeah, well, I don't you know, know, if 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 this were given to, you know, a hero like Achilles, like I'm sure they'd be all like, I'm taking more. I, wanna, I, like, I say, I would say that that the reason why he picks Aphrodite is because he is a Trojan prince and he already has those other two things, anyways. Yeah. Troy is a powerful place with a powerful army that resists all of Greece for ten years. Right? He well, doesn't it hasn't need. At that point, but yeah, yeah. He d he d he does not need, and they have vast allies and a huge yeah. empire. Right? They don't. He doesn't really require that because, as a Trojan prince, he already sort of has it, yeah. and it doesn't really interest a guy like Paris. Paris is more of a dandy. He's more concerned with the accoutrement of war and heroics than the actual fighting and killing. Right? You know about that from the yeah. Iliad, and we're preaching to the converted here. But Paris is the type of guy whose life is centered on 
beautiful things, right? Mm-hmm. And so this this speaks to his soul. This speaks to his essence as a hero. And and I'm perfectly able to accept him as a romantic hero. That's not a problem for me at all, right? He gets away with it, right? Um, and he lives a, he lives a, a life of of uh, power, prestige, uh, and of course tragedy. But he gets all those great things. So right. let's so let's bring it back to Helen. Yeah, and <laughs> we got a little off track. Yeah. talking about Paris, but that's yeah. okay. Um, so Helen has made this argument that her life with Paris has not been all this victorious, everything yeah. that it's that it's been cut out to be. And she's saying this right in front of Hecuba, and Hecuba, of course, is the only one there who can refute what she's saying. Totally. And Hecuba does uh, does take on a rather lengthy speech. Yeah, she has a rebuttal. Um, Exactly, rebutting Helen, um, and basically saying, "Look, this whole story about the gods—this is this—you're making this up. Like, yeah, it's bunk. The gods yeah. aren't stupid enough to do something like mm-hmm. that." But you know what's great about this? I like her argumentation as well. Mm-hmm. But you know what it? What the audience? Because the audience knows their Homer, and the audience knows their myth, right? They have to accept a more difficult argument. Than Helen's, mm-hmm. right? Because Helen's toes the line; it just sort of reframes the myth, right? But what the audience has to accept with Hecuba's rebuttal is the notion that there was no judgment of Paris, that the goddesses did not appear, mm-hmm. right? That the wedding of Peleus and Thetis, or whatever circumstances that created the judgment of Pe- of, of uh, Peleus and Thetis, did not exist. Everybody in attendance in that audience knew of that myth, right? Mm-hmm. And some variation of. They knew their Homer, right? Then they hear Hecuba say, that's a lie, right? Mm-hmm. What's the more difficult argument? You know, I know what makes us, we as moderns, we like the, he- the Hecuba one. Yeah, right? because she's... It seems, re- yeah. Reasoning. Re- reasonable, yeah. right? Yeah. Considering the circumstances. But if you buy that whole logic train, right, hers is the one that you've got to be worried about. Yeah. Well, what I wanted to pull out from, mm-hmm. from Hecuba's um, speech mm-hmm. is her um, her characterization yep. of what it was like to live with Helen and Troy, oh, basically. <laughs> sure. Um, Can you imagine? So she says, and I mean, the speech is full of it, but yeah. we're going to... Um, Ten, oh, oh, the contempt ten, is thick. Line, line 1008. Your practice was to keep your eye on fortune and follow her. Yeah. Virtue you were never willing to follow. Your next point. You claim that you stole away by lowering yourself from the towers with plated sheets, that you would not remain in Troy against your will. Tell me, when were you ever discovered hanging from a rope or sharpening the blade of a sword? Any decent woman would have killed herself in her longing for her former husband. Mm -hmm. Many was the time I said to you, daughter, leave Troy. My sons can find other women to marry. I will help smuggle you out and I will take you down to the Achaean ships. Put an end to this war. Mm -hmm. But you found my good advice a bitter pill. You lived proud and peevish in Alexander's house. You wanted the Orientals to prostrate themselves before you. This was all important to you. And afterwards, you appeared in public like this, beautifully dressed and carefully made up. And you look upon the same sky as your husband. I could spit upon you. You ought to have come out humble, your eyes 
to the ground in the torn garments of a widow, with your hair shorn in the Scythian fashion, with a becoming modesty to outweigh your past shamelessness, contrite for all your errors. So what, um, one of the things that we get out of that speech is, is how Helen looks right then while she's giving her speech to Menelaus. Mm -hmm. The rest of the women are in mourning, in rags, for lack of a better yeah. expression. But here is, Covered but Helen comes filthy. out. Helen comes out in her finery. Yeah. So she's she Cleaned, is using perfumed and pretty. She's not just using her words, as you mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. She's also using her beauty, mm -hmm. um, and and it's Hecuba that that clues us in to this, mm -hmm. um, because you know we don't have those those. Uh, descriptions or stage notes or yeah, whatever we're not from, seeing uh, from yeah mm -hmm. so um, I I just like her characterization you lived proud and peevish in Alexander's house mm -hmm. like Helen Helen ruled the roost and was yeah. difficult to get along with and was not how a woman a woman should be um, she n not modest and not uh, not contrite and not wanting to leave. Mm -hmm. So Helen, um, Helen, or sorry, Hecuba uh, persuades Menelaus a little bit, but Helen doesn't give up, and she kind of mo moves in and uh, says, "Do not blame me for a sickness that is sent by the gods. Mm -hmm. Forgive me." Yep. And Menelaus, of course, um, decides, well, I'll wait till Greece to decide what to do about Helen. If and the longer he waits, the longer he keeps Helen alive. He's cardboard in this. He's not going to, yeah, He's yes. the less likely he is going to carry out his initial idea of wanting to kill her. Yeah, absolutely. Because she, she wins with each moment. Yeah. Right? There's no, their indecision is, is waning. Yeah. Right? So the, it, the failure to make a decision is a decision. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And Helen knows it, right? Yeah. And, and and she's not going to, you know, I don't know if it's conscious or not. It's just her character. They're talking about how she appears and how she, she cleans herself and how she manages to stay clean while everyone else is dirty, you know? Mm -hmm. um, well, she's done it because she, she knows she's meeting Menelaus mm -hmm. and she's got to convince him mm -hmm. not to kill her. Yeah. And she's using both her superpowers. Yeah, both she's using her, her power. Her mm -hmm. physical beauty mm -hmm. and her words. Yeah. There, there's, a, a, there's a kind of quality. <laughs> it reminds me of, of Apocalypse Now, when um, the character of, uh, well, Marty Sheen's character was talking about how he saw one of the, was this cavalry uh, cavalrymen or something during the sec uh, during the Vietnam War? He said he had a strange sort of glow around him, and you just knew that he was getting out of the war without so much as a scratch. Yeah, you know what I mean. And that's kind of the same thing about Helen. She could live through ten years of 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 bloody murder and bloodshed, obviously, and 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 not get a cut, scrape, or get dirty. You know, yeah. it's just part of her part of She's her presentation. Cat that always lands on her feet. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. a survivor. Right? She is a survivor. And she gets Cleos out of it. We're still talking about, I mean, of course she's not mm -hmm. real historical, mm -hmm. but her story keeps being told. And her story keeps being talked about. Absolutely. And even, um, what's the expression? 
bad publicity is better than no publicity. Sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, right. we, we're definitely seeing a lot of that around lately. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. It, what do you think? Did we do a fair job? We'd like to I hear back we, from you if, we, if, yeah. you, well, if you can tweet yeah. at us. What do you think? Um, yeah, so why don't we stop it there for tonight? Do um, we have uh, some comments? Yes. last episode i guess we had some technical difficulties yeah um, barely but yeah whatever crank um, the volume episode 15 <laughs> no, no, no. it uh, we're working on trying to overcome that mm-hmm. um we are trying out some different programs that have also been recommended to us just to see how they compare we're using but rec- anyway recording tonight with audacity yeah so um we did have a bit of listener mail from from Twitter. Aiden Sarah um, alerted us to the issue, so thank you. And um, acad- somebody but with the username Academics IPFW said that I agree the levels could be better, but the content rocks. So thank you very much for uh, that note of encouragement, because Indiana, of course Purdue, yeah. the uh, the content is really important. <laughs> um, I did want to mention some recommended listening that I heard on the radio. It was a podcast that I was already familiar with, but uh, CBC here in Canada has a show called Podcast Playlist where they uh, highlight uh, snippets from different podcasts. We have not had the privilege of being on that yet. Um, But uh, the Trojan War podcast uh, was one of their podcasts that they were highlighting. So if you're interested in just the story, um, the Trojan War podcast, and I forgot to write down the uh, gentleman's name who does it. Uh, that's how prepared I am. Um, excellent, excellent. I've listened to a few episodes myself. Um, and if you just want to be told the story and to experience it in, in, in a manner similar to how the Greeks would have experienced it. Now, he's, he's not re- reciting Homer or the Iliad or anything like that, but he's just telling the story um, over podcast. I believe the fellow's from Toronto and is um, a story t- a professional storyteller. Um, so I do recommend that one, and that is actually a nice tie-in um, f- with tonight's topic, too, um, with the Trojan War. So anyway, um, that's it for tonight. You can get in touch with us on our brand-new Facebook page, Myth Take. You can follow our Twitter hashtag, MythTake. You can't... <laughs> Noticing a trend. <laughs> Consistent branding. Um, you can tweet at me. I am at Miss Allison. I'm at And we would love to hear from you. And we'll be back here. So thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for listening.